Welcome to Broken Law, a podcast about the law, whose interest it serves, and whose it does not. Brought to you by the American Constitution Society, a 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. I'm Christopher Ray DeRocher, Vice President of Policy and Program at ACS, and your host for this episode. The conservative legal movement has long placed children at the center of its culture war approach to politics, frequently focusing on public education and its supposed desire to shield children from concepts, ideas, and even people that conservatives deem inappropriate. These efforts are not only a threat to a pluralistic, multiracial democracy, but are particularly isolating for children of color, LGBTQ plus children, children from other historically marginalized communities, and their families. A recent spate of legislative and executive action in conservative-dominated states across the country is now moving beyond schools to directly target the physical and mental health of young people by banning or severely curtailing gender-affirming health care and social transition for transgender and gender nonconforming youth. The risks to these young people, their parents, their health care providers, and even a state's health care system are dire. Here to help me understand what these bans do and the context within which they are being proposed and passed are my two guests, Alejandra Caraballo, a civil rights attorney and clinical instructor at Harvard Law School's Cyber Law Clinic, and Mary Kelly Persine, a civil and human rights lawyer and founder and principal of Persine Law and Policy. Alejandra, Mary Kelly, welcome to Broken Law. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Alejandra, I wanted to start with you. Could you describe, I know that there are a lot of proposals out there in a lot of states. Unfortunately, there seem to be new ones introduced daily. But could you define some of the defining features of these legislative proposals that are that are cropping up in conservative states? Yeah. So me and my friend Aaron and Ali help run a legislative tracker um, at legialerts.com. Right now, as of this moment, we have 462 bills, which is likely a bit of an undercount in terms of the number, just because it's just the sheer number is three of us trying to keep track and, and not all of them are, are obviously anti-LGBTQ. Some are talked into things. Others are passed as, as committee amendments and, and budget amendments and all kinds of other obscure legislative tactics. But still, it, it speaks to the scale of the issue. When you have 462 bills targeting a portion of the population, near, nearly all of them are, an, are specifically anti-trans. There's about 131 bills banning gender-affirming care, 65 bills that are similar to don't say gay or trans with forced outing provisions, 40 drag bans, 29 trans bathroom bans, 12 states banning changing of birth certificate gender markers, 21 that would define trans people out of the law, 16 forced misgendering provisions, 47 trans sports bans, and then other kind of minute ones dealing with anti-boycott laws, similar to anti-BDS laws. And so we're just seeing this, this just massive effort to essentially legislate particularly trans people, but broadly LGBTQ people out of the law. And I think the the most particularly heinous ones have been these gender-affirming care bans, which primarily have been targeted at trans youth, but although this session we've seen them expand towards adults by raising the age now in some states like Oklahoma and Texas to 26 and perversely calling them the Millstone Act, which is a biblical reference to 
murdering people by hanging a millstone around their neck and dropping them into a body of water and drowning them, if that doesn't tell you the intentions of these lawmakers. And additionally, you know, we're seeing even more kind of surreptitious efforts to, you know, they don't want to outright ban and just say we're banning this care for adults. But what they're trying to do is ban coverage for care for adults, and then basically regulate it out of existence by expanding malpractice liability to basically indefinite periods of time to 30 years, restricting provision of care of gender affirming care only to doctors and not nurse practitioners and others, which for most trans people, their primary care provider is a nurse practitioner, which would, would essentially boot most people off their, their primary care provider for gender affirming care. So we're, we're seeing this just like broad assault on, on literally the ability for trans people to exist in more than 40 states. And it's, it's particularly a dire situation right now. Thanks, Alejandro. So I guess my next question is specific medical interventions are at stake here. What what particular things are being banned, particularly when it comes to, to children and, you know, which of those are relevant and also which of those are more like boogeymans that actually are not relevant to the experience of trans and gender nonconforming youth? Yeah, so particularly what they've been targeting through f- mostly felony bans, so that they're, they're passing criminal laws to criminalize the provision of gender affirming care for trans youth, which is the gold standard endorsed by every major medical association in the country. But the standards are set by WPATH, an international body that, that compiles all of the available research and has experts who work with trans patients set the standards of care that have been developed over decades. So, you know, this is a very well-established field of medicine that has decades of research behind it and has been essentially done for, for nearly over a century. And so they are attempting to criminalize this care in many states, try to forcefully detransition trans youth by banning access to puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and basically in in the other aspects, try to make it even like what, what passed in Kentucky, even make social transition illegal, which I don't even know how you enforce that when like social transition is just a name change or a haircut or clothes. And so, you know, they, they're really particularly targeting this care. And what this is, is this is the legislative face of a terror campaign against the trans community. This is this really got kicked into high gear. We, we saw the first ban pass in Arkansas two years ago. We saw another ban in Alabama pass this time last year, and those were the first two states. And then Florida pushed their their ban through the medical board. But now we're likely, by the end of this legislative cycle, about to have roughly about 20 states that have passed some sort of ban on this care. And But what we saw over the summer particularly led on social media was this kind of stochastic terror campaign against providers of gender affirming care. We saw bomb threats made against Boston children's. We saw harassment and threats made against children's national providers were personally being threatened with, with being murdered. You know, the, the same kind of tactics that have been used against abortion providers for decades were basically being brought. And just this kind of broad, full-scale attempt to, you know, they, they they could not shut down these this care legally in most of these states, so they attempted to do so through intimidation and terror by 
creating this vast ecosystem of misinformation, misciting all kinds of studies, relying on pseudoscience, bigotry, vitriol to drive this engine of hate. And these legislative bills are just the kind of state face of this, because at the end of the day, what these people are seeking to do is drive trans people out of public life. They want to make it impossible for trans people to exist as themselves in public. Yeah, Christopher, if I could add a bit from a professional perspective and perspective from a parent, you know, that's not an exaggeration to say that the driving out of trans people from public life is precisely the goal. Michael Knowles shared that at CPAC when he talked about the eradication of what he calls transgenderism, which is an attempt to split off transgender identity from personhood, which is not, is just impossible. So, you know, just do away with that lie in the language, right? So the professional implications here are really serious for healthcare providers of all kinds. And I include mental health care providers, school counselors, therapists, et cetera, because those professions have core ethics codes that require them to serve the best interests of the patient. And so for the same reason that you won't see a randomized controlled trial of you know, gender-affirming care medications, you won't see that precisely because they've been shown to benefit. And you cannot do a randomized control trial without a alternative treatment when you have a demonstrated benefit. So, you know, you, you, this is a situation where you're putting you know, you're pitting doctors and scientists and therapists against their own ethical codes and the requirements that they have to meet to avoid committing malpractice. So I chair the American Professional Society and the Abuse of Children Amicus Committee. We have people from all professions in the committee. And I asked one of my pediatricians what this meant. You know, what would it mean to actually face a ban on gender affirming care, a criminal ban in the state where you practice? And what he said to me was, you have to either abandon your patient, you have to break the law, or like a lot of my friends, you retire early. So, you know, the larger context here is, as you said at the, at the top of the podcast, facing the loss of, you know, medical care capacity in a lot of states that are already very low on doctors. So if you have a pediatric endocrinologist that can no longer follow standard of care for gender affirming care for their trans patients, you lose your endocrinologist and you lose diabetes care which is really insane when you think about the rural states that that suffer under such a diabetes healthcare need you know that load is very high lawyers of course will have a, i think more to say later in the podcast about lawyer ethical codes of conduct i am the parent of a trans child here in san francisco california and i can tell you that you know as a parent the thought of losing custody of my child because I affirm who my child is and always has been is terrifying. Fundamentally, that is what Florida and Texas are trying to do, and perhaps other states if they succeed in those legislatures. But more than that, I can say this this flood of legislation affects every trans kid, every LGBTQ kid, and a lot of Gen Z. These kids are view themselves as being in it together. They feel very much like trans kids are being attacked, you know, because they are. If if we don't think that that affects the mental health of kids whose mental health is already under such threat, I don't, I mean, this is not protecting children. This is attacking the the most vulnerable group in the United States in public, because these kids can hear you, right? Like these kids are on Instagram, they're on TikTok, they're on Twitter. They can see and hear what legislators are saying about them. And I really want people to internalize what that is like 
for a youth and for a parent of that youth who has no power to protect her child. Right. I think, you know, you raise a really interesting point, Mary Kelly, that the states that this is being considered, that these are like seriously being considered are no boundaries for the messages that are coming out. So, you know, it's not just the trans youth in those states or the trans people in those states. It's trans people and gender nonconforming people throughout the country who have to hear these messages that, as you said, dehumanize them and deny their sort of like very existence and their lived experience, which, you know, makes it that much more dangerous beyond just the actual legislative or executive actions that are that are being taken. So, you know, you also, you, you mentioned a lot of some negative consequences, and I'd really like to unpack that. And I'd obviously, I, I want to start with the people that this is specifically targeting. What are the consequences? Alejandra, I guess I'll, I, I, I'll lead with you. What are the consequences to transgender and gender nonconforming youth who are denied both the sort of like the needed health care that they should be receiving, as well as in some cases you mentioned, the opportunity to socially transition. What are the consequences to that? I mean, I, I want to note that children who have already had access to gender affirming care and have supportive families are sadly more of the exception rather than the rule. As we know, you know even from Reuters data last year, like only 4,000 kids have had access to puberty blockers over the last four years. So compared to, you know, the, the, the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of trans youth around that, like it is such a relatively small proportion. So I, I don't mean to minimize it, but I just want to ensure that, that, you know, the youth that are being impacted by these laws, yes, are being impacted, but there's a whole subset that don't have supportive families that don't have supportive structures that this is making it even worse and making them feel even more hopeless. And so, but you know, you're, you're talking about a population that already has such incredibly high rates of suicidality, depression, anxiety, all of these kind of uh, comorbidities that are results of gender dysphoria. And then on top of that, you're adding in this, this essentially state sanctioned attack on their existence. And these kids don't live in a vacuum, right? Like the other kids in their classrooms are picking up on this. Like this is going to result in more bullying. These kind of forced outing provisions can result in essentially blackmail for an extortion ability for other students or even teachers, right? Because then they can use that, that risk of outing them to unsupportive parents as, as something to hold over them. So we're not talking about how these things will actually impact these kids and what it means for a child who has been receiving this care to be forcefully detransitioned. And, you know, and we've already seen families who are refugees from their states. They're leaving states like Texas and Florida. They're leaving for northern states like Massachusetts, Connecticut, or, or California on the West Coast or Illinois and in the, in the Midwest. And, you know, they're uprooting their entire lives, everything they've ever known, because their ability to exist in this world is being criminalized. That is incredibly traumatic. And I feel incredibly empathetic and, and just heartbroken for the parents, especially in this situation, who are having to deal with this and having to make these decisions and put on a stoic face. Because in so many ways, parents want to protect their kids from having to see the reality of this and 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 kind of shield them from all of this hatred and vitriol 
but you know, it, it, you know, and so dealing with that as a parent, and then you know, having to you know protect your kid and, and put on this face, I, I can't even imagine being put in that situation. And so we we are creating this absolute crisis in a time when youth are already in a mental health crisis, and you're talking about some of the most vulnerable youth in a mental health epidemic among youth and putting the full force of the state in many ways, trying to weaponize the mandated reporter laws in places like Texas to weaponize department of family protective services, all of these ways that the the states are essentially being weaponized to, to go after trans people. And it's just, I mean, I've heard personally from parents who have been in support groups where trans youth have you know attempted suicide some have unfortunately completed suicide and i wouldn't wish that on anyone to have to go through that uh, there was one story where a, le- a trans legislator in montana zoe zephyr was on the floor of the house in montana talking about how someone had reached out to her that a trans youth had had attempted suicide while watching the legislative hearing on some of the, one of the bills that was going through the legislature. So this is having a very real effect on youth. And I never want to lose sight of that. I am 32 years old. I'm an adult. I'm here in Massachusetts. So relatively, you know, insight, although my family lives in Florida and if this like bathroom bill passes, I don't know if I want to ever go back to the state of Florida because I could be criminalized just for using the bathroom. And this has just been absolutely exhausting and, and, and distressing for me. And I am an adult with a very solid support structure with supportive coworkers, a supportive partner, a supportive family and friends. And I am at various points having to just take breaks because I cannot deal with this constantly. It is just, it's, it's never ending barrage. And I can't imagine being in a situation for, for some of these vulnerable youth who don't have those that the luxury of those kinds of support networks. And it, it, it is, it's, it's devastating and it's, it's tragic. Christopher, I wanted to come behind Alejandra and just make a couple more comments on the health implications here, because I think some of these health implications can motivate lawyers to think more about the ethics of conduct in interacting with these laws. So the first point is that the Journal of the American Medical Association brought out a report very recently on all-cause mortality among this youth group. It is spiking upward. And it's from injuries, right? It's not from COVID. It's not from illness. It's from bullets. It's from suicide. It's from drug overdose, right? So we need to really sit with that. It really puts into sharp relief what we say when we're talking about a mental health crisis. I don't think that it's legitimate to separate mental from physical health. It's all of a piece, right? So when you're talking about medical care for trans youth, you are also talking about psychiatric and psychological well-being. It's really important to remember that. The second point is to think about this in the context of toxic stress and all of the things that we're learning about toxic and chronic stress. And especially for youth, especially for people under 18, the impact on overall health and on life and educational outcomes across the lifespan. So when you're talking about chronic stress of this kind, chronic traumatic stress, it actually has a physical or allostatic load. It's not just the fact that people feel bad. You know, it's not one of those, we don't, you know, we don't care about your feelings kind of thing. That's totally irrelevant, right? We're talking about a kind of stress load that can lead to increased risk of things like chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, cancer, diabetes, asthma, 
And of course, depression, substance use, suicidality. Anybody who's curious to learn more about this can look at the very wonderful website of the National Child Traumatic Stress Network or Harvard Center on the Developing Child. There's tons of information out there about the impact of toxic stress of all kinds. There is race-based traumatic stress, and there is absolutely toxic stress related to this phenomenon that we're currently seeing. And we have to remember, this is chronic. It has been going on now for literally years without any let up. And during this legislative session, it's done nothing but get worse. Three states just this week ended up with both legislative houses approving gender-affirming care bans, one of them with a criminal penalty. If, I mean, that has clear physical impact, not just on trans kids. We have to remember LGBTQ kids and all the kids who are watching and feel unsafe because they see vulnerable kids being targeted with no resistance. That's important. Absolutely. Mary Kelly, you know, you mentioned that you're the the mother of a, a, a trans child. So I, I'd be interested, you know, what is your sense of the impact that these bans are having on parents and families? And what are the risks that particularly parents are facing, for example, like in Texas with the threat of child protective services intervening because a parent is seeking to provide their child with gender affirming care. Like what are the, what are those consequences and and what does this mean for the, the family as a whole? It's really hard to put that into words. Parents treasure their children. I have twins. They are the light of my life. They always have been. My trans kid is this incredible, glorious, imaginative, you know, leader, musician, poet, just what an amazing person. And they're trans and that's wonderful. It's, you know, again, part of their joyful, creative self. If I were to think of, of dulling that light in any way, I, I can't, I, I can't tolerate it as a parent. If I think about that child being taken from me first and second, put into a family or a context where that would be rejected, where they would be rejected because they will be transgender no matter what, right? You can't take a transgender child from an affirming family and suddenly make them not transgender. That's ludicrous. I I can't, I, I would do anything to avoid that. I would put my child in the trunk of my car and drive to Canada. I would do whatever I had to do. And when I think about parents in Texas, particularly parents of children of color, immigrant parents who are affirming parents and maybe undocumented, when I think about the fact that they don't have resources and alternatives to save their children, I can't ring the alarm bell any louder. As a parent who's safe with resources in San Francisco, I worry about this 24 hours a day. And yes, as Alejandra said, I do try to, to, to hide that from my child. My child should not have to deal with that. They're in high school, for God's sake, right? So I look for opportunities for them to do positive things like organizing marches or speaking to groups or, you know, interning with, you know, with affirming organizations. They have a great healthcare network. They have support. But as Alejandra said, that doesn't like, that keeps them alive. I don't want just that for my child. You're listening to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society. ACS is the foremost progressive legal organization in the country, and every year our national convention is the premier progressive legal gathering. We bring together lawyers, law students, scholars, judges, activists, and policymakers to examine some of the most urgent and challenging issues confronting our nation. This year, our national convention will be May 18th through the 20th at the Capitol Hilton in Washington, D.C. You should be there. 
Register today to benefit from our early bird special. To register, go to acslaw.org slash 2023 convention. Again, that's acslaw.org slash 2023 convention. And now back to the show. Alejandra, Mary Kelly brought up a little while ago, mentioned the impact that these bands can and will have on healthcare providers and healthcare systems writ large. Could you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in these laws, both in terms of civil and criminal penalties that healthcare providers may be facing and the ways in which that puts them at odds with their, as Mary Kelly said, their ethical obligations as as doctors and, and nurses and healthcare providers? So I think what we saw two years ago with Arkansas being the first one was just kind of this broad ban. Last year was kind of in Alabama was this felony ban, right? That, that would make it a felony to provide gender affirming care. It could be applied to the parents, could be applied to the providers. And, you know, this year we've seen some that are felony bans, other that are civil. Florida tried to go through their medical board, although now they're trying to pass a bill that to basically enshrine them what the medical board did. And, you know, increasingly what we've seen is they realize that going hard with a criminal ban with forced detransition, which basically abruptly ends care for, for the trans youth, is usually DOA, even in more friendly courts for these states. In Alabama in particular, a Trump-appointed judge still like, granted an injunction because you know, just the, the the weight and the nature of the evidence, it just was so overwhelming. And so what they realized is they need to try to to limit the ability for orgs like the ACLU to bring these cases. And so, you know, they've they've what they've done under the guise of compassion, and and mind you, there is no compassion with these people. They are sociopaths. They have sat there listening for for weeks of families pouring their hearts out and then just go to to call them groomers, to call them child mutilators, the just the most egregious stuff and saying this directly to the faces of trans youth and their parents and their families and their supporters, you know, they, they, they don't care. And so what they're doing under this false guise or pretense of compassion is in putting in grandfather provisions. And it's a cynical ploy to deprive the, the, the civic society groups like ACLU and, and the, the litigation orgs of plaintiffs and good, a standing for a preliminary injunction. Because it limits the ability for irreparable harm if the the patients that are already receiving this care are grandfathered in and they don't face the immediate risk of being detransitioned. Although that means that the the youth that were basically have been trans for four, five, six years that were going to start puberty blockers or hormones now are are blocked from doing so. And because of the way that the law works, that then makes it a, a much harder onus. And so that's one of the things that we've seen. Additionally, Arkansas passed a bill that essentially is is trying to do an end run around the injunction barring their bill. And so what we've seen is this shift to basically what I call, you know, the end of civil rights through like this one little neat trick, which is basically outsource all civil rights, the elimination of civil rights to private rights of action. That's what we saw with SBA with these bounty bills on abortion in Texas. And what they've done in Arkansas and what they're they're increasingly doing is they're saying the state is not in charge of enforcing this. What they're saying is it is inherently malpractice to provide gender affirming care, except under these very limited circumstances. And if you do provide it, that you're under these 
really onerous malpractice rules that extend the statute of limitations, which are typically one to two years, extend it to 30 years, and then take it out of the procedural rules of typical malpractice lawsuits so that essentially they make it so that it's going to be near impossible for any of these providers to get malpractice insurance. And they're mandating malpractice insurance. So what they're doing is essentially trying to, to make an end run. And because all of this is only enforced by private rights of action and liability, who do you sue to enjoin because of the legal fiction that is ex parte young and the abomination that is the 11th amendment? I sorry, I have very strong feelings on the 11th Amendment and sovereign immunity. I think it's absolute bullshit that you can't sue the state when they're depriving a constitutional right. And you have to do this roundabout suing a state officer that's enforcing it. But what we're seeing is the, this increasing tactic of basically outsourcing the elimination of civil rights to vigilantes to f- bring lawsuits or just essentially eliminating through this kind of regulatory procedure where you can't sue to enjoin or stop this from happening because there's no state official that's enforcing it, even though. Technically, the courts are enforcing this. And so that's happening there. They're doing it in Florida. There's ones that are essentially, there was a bill proposed in Florida that would have required employers that provided gender-affirming care coverage to cover detransition care indefinitely, even for employees that are no longer there. So they could be liable for up to 50 years down the line. And that's an unquantifiable risk. And unquantifiable risk means that you can't build an actuarial table and you can't ensure that. So, you know, they, they've come up with these like devious ways to go around and basically circumvent these kinds of legal strategies that have been able to stop these bills from going into practice. And they're doing the same thing with bathroom bans. They're doing the same thing with sports bans. They're doing with everything. They're basically outsourcing this all to private rights of action. That's exactly what don't say gay was, right? So what we're seeing is this, this broad expansion of the elimination of LGBTQ rights by empowering the worst bigots in society to basically bring whatever lawsuits they want and act as vigilantes of the state deputized to erase trans people and LGBTQ people out of society. Thanks, Alejandra. So, uh, Mary Kelly, I, I want to turn to you now. You've, you know, you mentioned earlier sort of like the concerns that attorneys should have about their interaction with these laws and particularly their participation in the enforcement of these laws. Could you talk a little bit about the ethical obligations that lawyers have and why it should give them pause or to, to sort of even engage with these and, and what that means and what that would look like? Sure, sure. I mean, I think this is untrodden territory to some extent, right? But if you look at the prelude to the ABA model rules of professional conduct, that prelude reminds us of the privileged place that lawyers have in society. When you think about our obligation to protect democratic institutions, when you think about what I think of as our obligation to protect basic principles of human rights, the core of which is the dignity of the person. And so if the dignity of the person means anything, it means not placing people outside the circle of public life, and particularly not for invidious reasons, right? There is nothing to say about these laws that is stronger than this is simply invidious discrimination. It is the targeting of a group because of inherent characteristics of that group, and that is a fundamental human rights violation. 
for lawyers, it's really important to remember that this whole machine grinds to a halt if we refuse to enforce or participate in these legal structures, right? So if you think about American slavery, for example, the whole endeavor would have ground to a halt if lawyers simply would have said, I will not comply with any of this machinery of trafficking. And so I think that for lawyers, it's really important to consider what it means, as you said, Christopher, to say that this is in contradiction to my core ethical obligation and I will not comply. If you look at Rule 8.4G, that's particularly upholding the integrity of the profession. And that's where you can think about things like invidious discrimination against people on the basis of gender identity. If you think about what not complying looks like, one of my favorite examples these days is this very powerful group of three women senators led by Senator Megan Hunt in Nebraska, who are filibustering and have since the start of the legislative session to prevent Nebraska from passing its gender affirming care ban. Not one law has passed in Nebraska this whole session. And they've said this session's effectively over, guys. We are not going to yield. And that is what it looks like not to comply with a system that is trying to outlaw a vulnerable group because of a characteristic of their identity. So don't comply. Resist in whatever way you can as a lawyer. You know, I can't instruct people how to conduct their practice, but I would say, for example, that if you are a prosecutor and told to prosecute a doctor for providing best practice medical care, decline to prosecute. That's just one example. Yeah, I think I would just quickly add, you know, this is something me and my co-authors tackled a bit in our law review article that talked about interstate extradition post-Dobbs and and how it'll apply to gender-affirming care and and abortion restrictions. And, And, you know, one of the discussions we had was like how this you know the, the the criminalization of of rights that had been enshrined in the Constitution for well over fifty years is going to put people in in very particular binds because once the state criminalizes something, then it creates all this knock on effect and it legitimizes itself the the use of state violence to enforce this and you know the worst atrocities in American history have always been legal. The genocide against indigenous people has been was legal. The slavery was legal. The internment of Japanese Americans during World War II was legal. Jim Crow was legal, right? And so we have to understand that at a certain point when things start to become crossing this moral boundary that it is violating fundamental human rights, we have a decision as lawyers to make is, you know, are we complicit if we continue to take part in this system in a way that is furthering harm to communities that is endangering fundamental human rights. And, you know, and that can mean a variety of different things, right? So, you know, one of the issues that came up last year in Texas was, you know, these investigations into families with trans kids. And when a DFPS investigation starts, families are typically barred from just leaving the state, right? It's to prevent, you know, kind of like absconding or, or further abuse or trying to, to, to flee law enforcement. But what that also means is like the state could then basically keep those families there and prevent them from leaving. And, you know, attorneys ethically would be required to tell their clients to stay. And I know I've had conversations with people where, you know, the ethical thing is to tell them you have to stay and you have to, to comply with these investigations. But from a fundamental level, when you see the state being weaponized this way to separate children from their families, at a certain point, it's like, you know, ethics be damned and professional responsibility be damned. Like get your kid out of the state and get somewhere where they're safe. And, you know, and that's increasing what we're seeing with shield laws is to not comply with these kinds of things. But 
you know, fundamentally what we're seeing is is this kind of breakup of the United States. It's occurring very acutely in the legal community because one state's human right is now turning into another state's capital crime. And how do you have a federal system that can maintain cohesion and comedy when you basically have this divergence among laws that is so stark? And the way, you know, one of the things I talked about in our law review article is the way that this is a one-way vice for the worst states to criminalize abuses and the way that the extradition clause and the full faith and credit clause acts is that basically whatever the basement floor of one state's criminal laws are, every other state is bound by that, regardless of their views of, of human rights. And so we have to understand that we're in a very precarious situation. The courts have been exceptionally politicized and we can't expect the courts to save us in this scenario. And we have to make our own decisions, given the facts that we have at the time to do the best decision and the best legal work that we can. I would say that, you know, professional responsibility be damned in terms of seeing professional responsibility in a very rigid way. Sure. But I think about Peter Rubin, who's now an associate justice of the Massachusetts Appellate Court. When he founded ACS, he said law serves human values. If it does not serve, serve human values, it, what are we doing? And so I think that you do have to make your own decision as a lawyer about whether or not you comply with a law that is a basic violation. We each have to make that decision. I hope that we all make the right one. I would say that if you are in a state considering an anti-extradition law, that you call your reps. California has one up, SB 36, um, would forbid a magistrate from swearing out a criminal warrant for someone who comes to California basically for violating these laws. Yeah. And I'll just, you know, one last quick thing, you know, one thing that I've, I've struggled with is like, I, I posted a link on Twitter to um, the DIY HRT directory because states are now increasingly minimizing access. They're, they're cutting off access through Medicaid, through health insurance to, to HRT and adults are being impacted. And I was attacked being called a drug dealer to <laughs> minors. And like, this was a, for adults only and it's just information on how to self-administer. It's purely a harm reduction tool. It is squarely protected, but like you see how the the machinations, right? They criminalize something, and then you try to put out material to make sure that your community's harm is minimized and mitigated. And then they they attempt to then say that you are a criminal for doing that. Right, right. And I think it's important, and I think you've both done an excellent job of contextualizing these efforts with other efforts within the conservative movement, particularly around access to abortion and reproductive care. I, I think the parallels are are stark in terms of, you know, anti-extradition provisions in states that want to protect women's choice and also want to protect the availability of gender-affirming care for these youth who, who are basically run out of the states uh, in which their families lived because of these laws. And you know, I think it's all of a piece, right? All of these things individually are horrible, and they're, it's, it's terrible what they're doing to people and the diminution of rights for people, but it's all part of a larger effort and plan. And so none of these can be sort of like viewed or understood in isolation without also seeing all the other ways in which they're attacking you know, the ability to teach history that's accurate to children in a way that makes black and brown children feel isolated and unseen and unheard. And so, you know, I, I, I guess 
my question to both of you is how do you take that understanding of the larger context and use that to create a counter movement to what's happening in these conservative states? If you can, it's not an easy question to answer, I guess. I think that, you know, as lawyers, we have so many tools available to us if we just look you know, and get together with like-minded colleagues and think about different actions that you can take within your circle. So, you know, in the Bay Area, I always tell people to join the Bay Area Lawyers for Individual Freedom, which is our local LGBTQ bar association. There's the LGBTQ National Bar Associations. Join those and listen to people who have calls to action for you. It is really important. I mean, Alejandra mentioned that trans voices have not been centered. I think, you know, my child has made the same point to me. I think it's extremely important to listen to the people most impacted. We've learned this lesson in other areas. We need to learn it now. What do we need to do and what kinds of concrete actions can we take as lawyers who deal with this machinery of law to, you know, get in there and make it and kind of disable it in some ways is the way I think about it. This non-compliance disabling kind of tactic in the states where these laws exist. In states like California, how do we make the law, the protective law here stronger? And basically, how do we place our trans youth at the center and love them so they stay alive. Yeah. I think for me, I always remember, I always try to think about this maxim that I feel like really encapsulates the issue that we're in right now. So it's a, there are in groups for who the law protects, but does not bind. And there are out groups for who the law binds, but does not protect. And I always have to, view everything through that lens because, you know, as a trans person, anything I say or do is viewed through this completely different lens that for anyone else would be innocuous, right? So, and I think we've seen this week, you know, in light of, you know, the, the tragedy in, in Nashville, you know, this kind of broad weaponization of anti-trans narratives and using this tragedy to basically go after the trans community. We've seen, you know, trans people expressing their right to the second amendment, which you know, regardless of your views on like it, it's a legal activity, but then they're they're trying to insinuate that that you know uh, trans people shouldn't own firearms, and so you know these are the same people that had said that basically the Second Amendment is absolute, and so what we're seeing is that essentially that maxim right at play, right that that the trans people are this outgroup that the law binds but does not protect. So so essentially, um, you have to view it through that that lens and. So, you know, and the other thing I I try to remember as well is that, you know, power doesn't panic. And what this really is, is this is, this is a panic over basically existential dread over this, the fact that these people making these laws and pushing these laws are no longer the majority. They are no longer the ones in power in this country. If you look at Gen Z, they're majority minority they're you know, 20% LGBTQ with bisexuals being the, the, the largest identity group there. They're overwhelmingly diverse and millennials as well. Like, you know, the, the precursor generation to, to Gen Z, like they're not going conservative in the way that previous generations had as they aged. And so they realize this is their last opportunity. And they feel like if they don't somehow weaponize the state to force the culture to be what they want it to be, that it's all lost. And so that's why we're seeing this kind of vicious response because they feel backed into a corner and they realize that their worldview 
and their ability to enforce that worldview through the violence of the state is quickly diminishing and slipping, and it's panic. And so this is not actually a demonstration of their power. This is a demonstration of their weakness and and a last gasp attempt to maintain power. And so I think if you remember that, like, this is this is gonna this is an ultimately losing battle for them. This is them trying to to basically entrench themselves and buy themselves time. But in the long moral arc of the universe, like they're going to lose this. They're absolutely going to lose this. They're going to be remembered for the vile, hateful bigots that they are. You know, it just may take longer than we would like. I, I try to remind people in 2004, we saw so many bans on same-sex marriage pass. George W. Bush basically ran re-election on banning same-sex marriage and marriage equality. And in 2008, we had California by referendum you know, with Prop 8. And just a few years later in 2015, we had Obergefell. So we are in a precarious moment. I don't want to minimize that. But I also want to highlight the fact that you know, sometimes you take two steps forward and you have and you end up being forced to take a step back due to reactionaries. But ultimately, we will be pushing forward. And in the long term, we will win this fight. I appreciate that spark of, of positivity and hope, Alejandra, especially after that, 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 that conversation. I think that's both from a place of realism, but also um, optimism. So Mary Kelly, Alejandra, for folks who are listening, who want to do something, who feel like they you know, want to take some action, what are some things that you would recommend? Yeah. I mean, if you're in a state where these laws are passing, you know, if you can get to the state capitals, you know, make your voice heard. Right now is the critical time and we really need people to, to show up. And if you can't make it, donate where you can. And if you can't, you know, if you want to do more than that, see about the ways that you can get involved through your local bar associations, reaching out to various national legal groups and seeing if there are ways to volunteer and help. Because by the end of this year, by the end of this legislative cycle, we're looking at potentially 20 states that have criminalized gender affirming care with potentially significant number more passing all kinds of other legislation targeting, you know, various different aspects of trans existence. And that's, the, the ACLU can't litigate all that. They're they're great, but they can't. And and Lambda Legal as well. Like they're they're both wonderful, but they they can't litigate everything. And so there's going to be a need for much more local attorneys to bring on some of these cases with guidance from national orgs. So you you know get in contact with your state affiliates of the ACLU. Get in contact with various national groups like Lambda Legal, ACLU, National Center for Lesbian Rights. Transgender Law Center and see what ways you can get involved and provide your legal skills pro bono to help LGBTQ people in this moment. Yeah, we really, really need lawyers with litigation toolboxes to come and do that diligent grind of work that's needed to make motions for preliminary injunction, to you know make complaints, to actually follow the litigation through the courts. That's tremendously burdensome, and you know people who can give pro bono time through their firm or in other ways. That's something tremendously practical that you can do by following your local bar associations. For those of us who aren't trans, it's really important to remember that we are following the folks who understand how this works, know the politics of it and the strategy, and can tell us where our efforts are needed. And so that's a really important step to take as well. With that, I want to thank both you, Alejandra and Mary Kelly, for joining me today for this conversation. I appreciate having you. I think an excellent conversation. 
And I also want to thank our listeners for finding Broken Law. Please be sure to follow and subscribe to Broken Law so you don't miss any episodes. And please recommend Broken Law to a friend so we can bring these important conversations to more listeners. You can find details and show notes about today's episode on our website, acslaw.org. If you have ideas for future episodes, let us know. You can email us at podcast at acslaw.org or find us on social media at acslaw. Together, we'll speak truth to power about the law, whose interests it really serves, and whose it does not.